It's time for truth. The ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho, It's Time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I am your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Well, we welcome you once again to another episode of the podcast, Uh, whoever you may be and whenever you may be. We are thankful that you have made us part of your day. Jim, how are you today? Doing great. I had a great week last week down at Shepherds Conference. It's always edifying to go down there and really appreciate what these men are doing. And, you know, you and I were talking about uh, some of the some of the challenges that are coming out that are 10, 20, 30 years in advance and they're studying it. And we get to hear parts of that from the, the likes of Mike Riccardi and those guys. And it really gives you an appreciation for the battles that they're facing before they even get to us. And so that was my week is really appreciating that. And then obviously quick update on the beard. It still sits on my chin. Yep. Uh, we talked last time about uh, it was a beard of mourning because my youngest moved to Austin and I wanted him to see that his dad wanted him back with him in in the Boise area. Um, but now it's causing a little controversy. We've got three groups. we got those that want it to stay those that want to keep it the way it is and those that want it to grow. And Proverbs says, says a patient man has great understanding, so we're going to go slow with this. And so it stays for now, and we'll trim it up a little bit and uh, see where it takes us. Sounds good. Sounds good. The beer, the beer it might even need its own name, just like, you know, Chalk Knox or whatever had a, had a name challenge for his his beard. So I'll leave that up to the truth. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, as we uh, get started today, I, I think it would be good to introduce our guest in studio today, uh, Pastor Manny Pereira. Uh, Manny is the pastor of Trinity Bible Church in Morgan Hill, California. Uh, Manny and I were students together at the Master's Seminary, where we both graduated in 2011. And I'm grateful to the Lord for reuniting us Uh, And I'm super thankful that uh, he was gracious to uh, accept the invitation to be our conference speaker at our creation conference that we put on this past weekend. And so, uh, Pastor Manny, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Danny. It's a joy to be here with you all. Well, before we uh, get to meet Pastor Manny and to speak uh, about some of the things that he is passionate about, and we're excited for you all to get to know him even better, uh, we wanted to take a few minutes to discuss some current events. Uh, That's one of the values of this platform and uh, this podcast is that you can hear from your pastors about things that are going on uh, in the news and culture, um, in the world, and in the world of evangelicalism. We want to be able to speak to different matters and to try to bring our perspective and a biblical perspective to matters that we are um, actually living with and facing in this world. Many of you have heard about the collapse of SVB. That's the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which is actually in Pastor Manny's backyard. <laughs> uh, but Jim, this went uh, this bank went under recently. Uh, a couple others have uh, now failed also. Some other, other banks have uh, bit the dust. So uh, what do you make of this? And uh, what do you, how do you think we should think about these types of things? Yeah, and I took the time to do a little research and I actually posted it to the church men's Slack account so that they would have uh, a better representation. Of it. So I took two slides, both from the FDIC website. Um, and kind of what created this problem was during COVID, they essentially gave out what I would call free money. And there is no such thing as free money. So they actually printed more cash and put it out into the system. 
that causes a devaluation of things, which leads to inflation. And so we all saw this inflation last year was above 7% and currently it's running at about 6%. So it's still pretty high. Uh, and we see that in our gas prices and the prices of eggs. So what the feds do to counter inflation is they raise the borrowing rate. So now the borrowing rate, which was at zero, virtually zero for about five years, now goes up and it's up almost to 5% right now. Well, the banks, as people are depositing this money that they've been given as part of COVID, uh, have to back that up somehow. So they buy these T-bills, which are from the government, two years ago at 1%. Today, they're up over 5 or 6%. As those calls come in on those T-bills, they can't pay their bills. So essentially, they're losing money on those T-bills. And I've got two charts, one that shows the money going into the banks and the other, the T-bill backlog that has occurred by that. And so... Silicon Valley Bank collapsed first because of poor management, no question about it, but it's because they couldn't back up these T-bills. And so we saw it with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Credit Suisse over in Europe had big problems uh, this week. And then even as of two days ago, we had the first Republic Bank. So we had our third bank uh, fundamentally go into trouble. What's concerning is, is the way that our governments are responding to this or the banks are responding to this is essentially to print more cash. And so... That's back to causing more inflation. That's what a bailout is. Yeah. So they're really trying to, to spread this money. It's like spreading, you know, a teaspoon of peanut butter over two, two loaves of bread. They just have to go thinner and thinner. And as this backlog continues, the risk is if three or four of these happen and people begin to think, where is my money? And we have already seen this mark in your business where businesses are starting to ask questions, what banks are you at? Then you could have a run. And I'm not predicting it. You and I talked about this. I'm not a predictor of those things. But if there's a run, um, not only will cash become deflated completely, and we saw this in Europe, um, but getting money and distributing it will be very difficult. So goods will go up and cash will go down. So my caution is just watch it and be careful. If you have a lot of money in FDIC banks, certainly if you're over the $250,000 limit, you should you should balance that. And even if you have an exorbitant amount, think about credit unions and other ways that you can do that. If there's a run, um, be early. I hate to say that, but be early and be thinking about other hard assets that you can have. And we talk about gold and silver or even food, right, in this environment. So just just be wise in that and watch that. We'll continue to watch it and update as it goes. But those are things we should be thinking about anyway as part of good stewardship. But um, keeping an eye on the situation is going to be important. I think that's a key thing that you mentioned there is the idea of stewardship. Right. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the reality that all of life is spiritual and that right. uh, our, our desire is to honor the Lord with our resources, to be those who, especially as, as men, who have a responsibility to provide for our families, to look out for the future, to protect, uh, feed our families, those types of things. Um, so these are, are matters that are, are real and we just want to be wise and, um, and careful uh, to be... Um, handling our money and to be um, understanding the times so that we can uh, fulfill our responsibilities to honor the Lord in these things. So being good stewards is a, is a big element of that, right? Yeah. Never trying to predict it again. God's sovereign ultimately, but God, but we're responsible. So we've got to take the knowledge that the world is giving us, run it through wisdom and scripture and figure out a plan. And beware of fear. I think that's another one right. too, that we, we need to uh, rest in Christ and, and our assurance of him and his care for his people um, and to not just be reactionary, knee-jerky towards uh, the things that are happening uh, and based on on fearful reactions as opposed to 
uh, wise, uh, seeking good counsel, those types yeah. of things. And that's the danger of being a predictor and why I won't do it. I mean, we can look at the data and see what's happening, but then we still have to apply wisdom to it. Yeah. So, Well, this is, again, in Pastor Manny's backyard. Uh, do you have any comments or thoughts on, on any of this yourself? Well, not really. That was excellent. Very encouraging. And I just affirm all that was said, especially concerning biblical worldview and fear and just our perspective. I, I would say, you know, being in our backyard, we we have venture capitalists. We have constantly, I mean, the, it, our location is so filled with financial um, work. Essentially, the finances there are designed to empower all the high tech you know, inventions and deployments, the technology, and also the research that's done there, um, good and bad. And, and the, my point is just to say, I know I've been in those banks. I've given some lectures in some of those banks to Christians who are looking for encouragement. So I have definitely rubbed shoulders. I, I witnessed personally on flights down to seminary back and forth. I would sit next to venture capitalists and talk to them about. And my point is um, just to just to add, you know, the, the worldview you said earlier, Jim, and you nailed it. It's it's poor management because of their worldview. Right. It's the way that they see their responsibility and their part that they play. And uh, it degenerates very quickly, ethically, it degenerates. And I would just simply encourage us all to remember, this is not our home. We are responsible before God. We ought to be responsible creatures for the for His glory and for the good, not only of our families and the church, but also for society. We ought to be responsible, contributing members of society. We represent the new humanity on earth. We represent Christ in this. And so I think uh, that's where that comes in, being responsible, being wise, research out the data, understand. But at the end of the day, we rest. We rest and we, we don't fear. We're not crippled by the trends of godless decisions and godless management and godless government we 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 truly rest in christ and we get up with energy and excitement and with purpose and meaning and we have again we have something that the world doesn't have to move forward even when times like this are so uncertain very good yes and, and the church has dealt with many of these things over the centuries haven't we so. absolutely well great well we are so grateful to uh, have the opportunity to have you with us today and uh, the uh, following the conference and, and our time with you on the Lord's Day, of course, also. Uh, but we wanted to talk to you also about a few more things to just get to know you better and to, um, again, benefit our people in uh, these interviews. We think these interviews are uh, a valuable way for the saints to be edified and to uh, hear from other Christians, and in your case, uh, other shepherds. And so uh, we're, we're just super happy to have you here. The first area we wanted to touch on I think it's really valuable also for people to hear is is your testimony of how you came to know the Lord. Uh, would you just share a little bit about uh, how you came to Christ? Uh, delighted. It's a great honor. All glory to Christ. I pray that all that is said would be to his glory. Um, truly, we all have remarkable stories in some way or another when we understand what regeneration really is. It's always remarkable. But let me just uh, explain. I do have a in my own experience, and among those I know, it's pretty pretty different, uh, challenging in many ways, but I was a Catholic. I was born and raised a Catholic, and as far as I could see in our family line. So I served at the altar for 11 years. Um, and so that brought me all the way to my junior year of high school. I, was, I started before first grade, mm. and I was in a very small community. So at, at many times, um, for seasons, I was the only altar boy 
in the church. So again, very small farm community. All that to say, uh, it was deeply entrenched, both in terms of our heritage, uh, in terms of family. I, we, my family ultimately traces back to, to Italy and so um, and Germany for that matter on my mother's side. But the idea there is that uh, just heavily entrenched in Catholicism. Um, short, short, sort of short intersection of what happened, what the Lord used. Um, my father went through a crisis um, in my, when I was 17. I just turned 17. And um, an old high school friend of his invited him to a, to a Protestant church. He says, hey, you need, you need God. And uh, so he took my sister and I. My mother had left when we were five years old. So my father raised us and uh, took us to this Protestant church. Long story short, it was in a three-month window and only a three-month window that we were there. But in that time, I heard the gospel. It made sense. It clicked. God sovereignly opened my heart to see and to understand all the symbolism that I had been playing with and under, you know, participating in and serving without understanding. Suddenly clicked. Everything like puzzle pieces came together and I saw the picture. So 17 years old, I um, literally confessed my sin and acknowledged my need for Christ. I was given a, a the Bible for the first time, not a, not a picture Catholic Bible, but this time an actual New King James Protestant canon. I, I, I took that thing and oh, by the grace of God over time, read it so thoroughly over and over that it fell apart three different times. I love to tell the story how I, you can look at this Bible, I've kept it of course, but it fell apart so much that three different times I had to reinforce it with cereal boxes and tape and glue because you know I marked in it and I wanted that Bible. Right, so and my memory was that I could sort of remember where it was on the page and what page, and so it was a significant. All that to say, it was through the scriptures um, that God, you know, through the preaching of His Word, and then the scriptures that were given to me that uh, really I came, just just my life was completely and entirely changed. Wow. Yeah. No, that's great, and, and to see that the Lord is faithful to break that chain of, mm. of such a heritage and history that th those are powerful things. And yet, uh, not beyond God's grace to, uh, to reach in and to, and to save and to radically, I mean, transform the trajectory of your family. Absolutely. So that's very neat. It's a great story. <laughs> it is. Well, another major piece of your life is, uh, your background in the field of physics mm. and your work in the laboratory. Uh, would you uh, talk about where you worked and uh, some of the things that you worked on? I think that's there's some fascinating elements there. Just like to get a little bit of color as to some of those things that uh, that were important in your life and that you had a hand in. Yeah. Again, all glory to God. I tell you that there, there we're all made differently, right? And Romans chapter twelve, verse three talks about each having a different measure of faith, and I think that also corresponds to, you know, just our faculties intellect things, certain things, different people, that comes easier. So by the grace of God, I grew up in a poor home on a farm, ranch mainly, and didn't have much. And so I just tinkered around with things. I And and the nature of physics, which is primarily cause and effect of, you know, mechanics. Um, and then later I was most intrigued by electron theory. Those things um, by God's grace seemed to come easy to me. So by my by my freshman year of high school, I was actually, I tested out of physics and was able to, um, the, the teacher actually gave me apparatus to take home, told me, you're, you're not for this class, I'm gonna move you to the senior class. He put me in the senior class, 
I, I basically led the class in the scores. And then I, then he had me tutoring seniors for, um, for physics. So by the time I entered my sophomore year, I basically did everything the high school had to offer for physics. And he gave me the, this apparatus. So that was dangerous because um, <laughs> I took that home and I uh, took those and I began experiments at home. I just started with all kinds of experiments that I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I wasn't guided really by uh, empiricism and, and the studies that, you know, I should have known or I should have researched before practicing. But, um, but I learned well, just the old-fashioned way, <laughs> and I got to tell you, it was it was tremendous. Uh, through that experience, um, I, I just really was, had a love had a love for the things that you cannot see behind this material universe that works uh, so precisely. It's it's so. What fascinated me was math came easy, but when you marry math to matter and motion, um, there's something. I, to me, very attractive, something beautiful that, that really points ultimately to the majesty. Uh, I would even say just the, the pure holiness of the creator, just the amazing total otherness of this great God who, who creates mathematics and then creates matter emotion that, that conforms to these principles. So, uh, but remember, I wasn't a Christian at, when I was a sophomore. So uh, and then by the time I got to be a senior and that life crisis happened and then I came to Christ, uh, my, my life had really changed. So I changed high school senior year. So how this gets into what I ended up doing as a career is I, I everything was just in a turmoil. It was like a washing machine at the thrashing moment. I, I didn't know where I was going. And so I moved, I moved in with my mom. I never gone, I, you know, I never went to school with living with my mom. She left before I was, I started school. So there was this, this piece that I, I just needed to go back and my life had just changed and I wanted a new fresh, fresh start. And so, uh, so I went to live with my mom and it was there that I met my, my beautiful, wonderful bride and, um, and life partner that I've covenanted before God with. So, that changed everything <laughs> on the on the initial front of what I'm going to do with my life. And at the time, I just to be very candid, I and I pray that if anyone hears this that, that um, isn't isn't thoroughly attracted to school, to academics, to um, you know college, for instance, I, I can say I was there. I actually had no interest in going to college. Um, I, I I enjoyed physics. And I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed math. I kind of just cruised through it, but I was ready just to get out and work. I just, I was done, but it was my wife who encouraged me. No, no, you know, I'm going to go to college. She, she went to college and, you know, for early childhood education and she encouraged me to, and I, I, okay, fine. So, you know, I basically just did it for her. And when I got there, my first year, uh, I took the, you know, right away I took physics and, and, um, I, the, the professor said, okay, you, you need to be doing something here. So I was just loved it. And, and then from there went on. So I got two applied science degrees. Um, I did some work that went to uh, the state fair in California and it was on the news. It got a lot of attention, got a lot of, you know, there was, there was donations made to the college because of it, the university at the time. And uh, I, I basically took, I, I, I 
I dealt with material science, dealt specifically with with uh, metals and ferocity, you know, magnetism, electron theory. I was I was hired by the university to tutor uh, students in electron theory and logic, and um, and then of course physics. And so I went through that. I I I, I constructed an entire. Uh, system that dealt with inductive proximity sensors that would identify unique. This was before, um, this was quite a while ago. So the technology wasn't there on the market. I had devised a, um, a unique identification system that was very, very inexpensive. Part of the issue there for research is you're not only looking for what can work, but you're looking for what can work with the least amount of resources and the least cost, right? And so this, this was something where I took a World War II, that there were a surplus of inductive proximity sensors that the professor, the department head, came to me and said, Manny, can you do something with this? He just, just do this. And he gave me credit out of class, just said, you just do this. And, you know, so they put it up as a poster deal. And I, I came up with this, this way to use this to detect ferocity in metals. And it it proved successful. So the ag department basically took it over and said, wow, we can use this for automated gate systems for agriculture and uniquely identifying your vehicle and all of this. So it, it was pretty cool. Um, that led me to the next project. They came knocking on our door and said, hey, we need someone to deal. We need someone from your department to help us with um, basically with biomechanical efficiency in cattle, believe it or not. Harris Ranch, if you've heard of them, they're the largest uh, rancher in California and uh, for beef. And so they came with deep pockets and said, listen, we want to fund a project. We want you to do all the research. They just threw it in my lap. <laughs> so I basically had to devise this system to uh, detect the, the efficiency of the animal. And I did that through matters of physics. So you would take uh, the amount of food, I can't go into all the details, of course, but you take the amount of food that they would eat and you take the amount of water they would drink. And then I had it so that they, were, they had to pass through a certain area. And I used, again, inductive proximity sensors and transponders to identify each cow separately. And then I cataloged all that information in an old DOS computer. This was that far back. Okay. And this was a black screen with green blinking you know, <laughs> dots and, and collected all this data and uh, built a primitive database for it. And so at that point, you can identify which, which cow would eat the least, drink the least, and produce the most meat. Not fat, but meat. Right. And it was a genetic effort to really identify the natural, the natural genetic efficiency of the animal and Harris really liked it. So that, that kept getting me promoted up to sea. And so then Hughes Aircraft getting into my career now, the Hughes Aircraft, um, which designs satellites and they're one of their large bases of satellite manufacturing and deployment is in Los Angeles. So they came and they uh, interviewed me and said, Hey, we, you know, they gave me a job offer right there on the spot. It was more money than I ever imagined I could make. And they said, come down to LA and we want you to design satellites and send them up. And so I wrestled with that and partly because it would remove me, you know, with my, with my young family, my wife, we didn't have children yet, but, um, and all of our extended family. And I just wasn't sure. So at the same time, I got a counter offer from IBM and IBM said, eh, you know, we don't know exactly what we're going to do with you, but we want you on our side. So they, I negotiated with them with some leverage and said, well, then I need this. And they said, well, we can't pay that much right now. So why don't we meet you with, uh, you know, benefits? So they met me with benefits and I went that direction. Long story short, or, um, I ended up in the Elmaden Research Laboratory, which is one of eight laboratories in the world 
that is the research and development center of IBM. They they range everything from Rover that went to you know that went to Mars and and so that's all physics all the way down to what you have in small devices, everything from capacitance to again drives. Uh, when I started in the laboratory, I was the youngest hire in the entire department, and I was on a small team of four guys. And uh, by the grace of God, it was a privileged, really, just to to be a contributing part of that. Um, give you an idea of some of the things I worked on in that laboratory. It's really phenomenal. Some of which I can't really disclose. I'm 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 sorry to say. Please don't kill us. <laughs> yeah, no, I I wasn't going to go with that line, but I but I spent uh, when I left. Right, I spent over a half a day in an intellectual property attorney signing off all my rights. So I can't really uh, I can't disclose everything. But a couple of the things I can share with you that haven't gone to market yet. That's how far advanced some of these things were, wow. is we dealt with optics. So in, in one of the neighboring um, departments that I interacted with, I was in magnetism, but we dealt with optics. And uh, for instance, it would be a mouseless computer. So some of the technology we had was a mouseless computer where, the, where you would you, you get rid of the whole idea of a mouse. It's revolutionary. And instead, you use your eyes to indicate what you want to open. So it's very, it, it, in other words, you would just simply look where at a folder, for instance, and by looking at that folder, you'd use a key to indicate, I want, I want what I'm looking at. And it would know that you're looking at the folder. And then you can move your cursor in a document for word processing just simply with your eyes. And then you can indicate, now I want to move right where I'm looking. So the idea was ergonomics and efficiency. And this was back in the 90s. So it was extremely advanced. We didn't even have flat screens yet. <laughs> we were already doing this kind of thing. The other kinds of things I, I worked on were, um, I was on the Extreme Blue Project, which is an internal project of IBM that deals with um, grid computing. It, it actually was the computer that was the first ever to beat a man in chess, um, the, the um, chess master in chess, that is. <laughs> Not any man, most of us play, <laughs> we get beat. But, but um, so, and also the same, the same project I worked on, I worked on contracts with the Department of Defense, I worked on contracts with the Department of Energy, massive amounts of data being collected. And uh, my interface was to deal with the physics. I could talk with the guys in physics, I had to go and sit with them. We had to go through seminars with them so I could understand what's happening in the physics. But then I would go and sit with, the computer scientists and understand what they're trying to do and understand that code. And so that was a very, uh, a very important role. So very quickly, I was, I was blessed to advance and they sent me all over. I was in multiple countries. I gave lectures in Belgium and Mainz, Germany and in England and Korea and all over the U S and what I was primarily doing was interfacing those two branches of computer science and physics. And so some of the other experiments that we dealt with, obviously with the Department of Defense and Department of Energy, those were pretty significant. But some of the patents I had were uh, around that interfacing between physics, the experimental data, and the computer science guys. So I have one thing that's out there now, you know, that's, um, it's called the dual component multidimensional profiling system. I know it's a mouthful, but <laughs> it's basically this, this it's, a, it's a system that really uses, uh, it uses trigonometry as an algorithm for authenticating data. Uh, it's a unique thing. It's not done at the time that I did it. I don't know what, what the market has now, but I just simply imported my math 
into looking at a database and saying, well, we need a secure. And so I, I, I came up with a trig algorithm that would, that would take a unique, it's sort of like a checksum. It would take a unique identifier and, and uh, it, it, it was very fast and very efficient. So it was much faster than the token-based security that's out there today. And the most common is you have these little signature certificates and you have you know, tokens and then you validate a private key with a public key and all of that. Well, this, this dealt, dealt with uh, mathematics to do a lot of that work without the token. So that's, that's now owned by IBM. It's a patent that they have. <laughs> well, when are they going to get that out? Because I mean, that sounds easier than... It's, it's being used. In fact, the first year that it was deployed, and not, this is not an exaggeration, it sounds like it, had nothing to do with, really with me. It had everything to do with their business, but they're using, they're using that technology. First year deployment, it, it was over $1 billion in e-commerce. But that's, that's intra-business. So it's not commercial. It's not in consumer. This, we're talking between companies. Got it. So it's, it's like large mainframe type stuff they're using this on. So that, that's one thing that I had to sign away. And I got a, you know, I got like 50,000 stocks in, in that, from the company on that. And I had to sign that away. So it was a, it was a challenge to leave there, but I had other things. I, I won't take the time. We'll but, get to that. We'll yeah. get to that part. Yeah. No, that's interesting. No, you were uh, on the cutting edge, right? Of a lot of uh, of technology and, and research. That's pretty pretty amazing. So you you have this background, of course, in mathematics and uh, science and and all these types of things. So uh, of course you, that that gives gave you quite a bit of a passion, of course, for understanding the world that uh, with a, a view towards uh, knowing God and mm. uh, and glorifying Him um, and so forth. So as a Christian in the workplace, what was that like for you? That's a great question. It was challenging to say the least, um, but at the same time, by the grace of God, I, I, you know, I really think we need to all be stewards wherever we are in whatever we're doing. And being on fire for Christ doesn't mean you have to be a pastor. Um, we all have the responsibility to bear witness to the glories of Christ. So I had never intended, ever did I dream um, to enter ministry, never. I, I was perfectly happy at the time with science, but I bore witness to Christ everywhere. Um, I, I got to tell you this quick sh short story. Um, so when I was hired on, my my hiring manager was a double PhD, and he was a Buddhist. So uh, my first that first year of work, he really liked me, right? Really appreciated. So my first Christmas break, I had this massive project I had to deliver, right? And when you deliver in research. Uh, you don't just like you don't just go on vacation by the calendar. You have to deliver your project, and and that usually involves an extensive report, and it involves everything from uh, a verbal to a written to even experimental. You know, so I had to do that, and uh, so I was in there for about three hours giving my report before before I left for a Christmas break, and at the end of that, you know, I finished. He was happy, and I was just so excited. I just went into, you know why? You know why I love Christmas? That's it. That's how it started. Just that simple. Do you know why I love Christmas? And uh, his name was uh, Shui Lin. And um, you know why I love Christmas? And he said, no, tell me. That was it. 
So we spent another 45 minutes or so talking about Christ and the incarnation and the gospel and sin and the need, right? Curdius homo, why the God-man? Why did God have to take on human flesh? We went through it all, all the way through the cross and the burial and the empty tomb and and it was phenomenal, right? He, he responded at the time with just that very intellectual, dry, stoic, hmm. And okay, that's good, Manuel. And, and I, I left. Well, long story short, here, here we go. This is the part I needed to tell you, is that by the sixth year, he's coming to me and asking to have lunch with me after our meetings. He would say, let's have lunch. And he wanted just him and I. And he would start asking me questions about the Bible. And, and, and then, well, it started with questions about evolution. And then we went from there. I won't, I'll spare you all that. That was really good. <laughs> but, but then it went from there, it went to the Bible. And he starts asking questions about the Bible. Now, he's Chinese, right? And so he, um, he, he's, uh, he's talking to me. He says, yeah, you know, we know some people that go to these chi this Chinese church, but I need to know. And so he's asking me, asking me, asking me. Within seven months, he's now asking me, about baptism. He wants to give his life to Christ. Whoa. So he did that months before I left. I talk about the providence of God. So the point is, how is it to work in, a, in an environment that is predominantly God-hating, mm -hmm. not just atheistic, but these are anti-theists. Mm -hmm. they, they hate God. They, 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 they seek to displace the need for God through their worship of the creation itself and the worship of their own egos. That's the environment I worked in. It was, it was incredibly difficult to, if, you're, if you'd simply wanna live in this world and have a nine to five and have friendships and have peace everywhere you go and just simply come home happy to be a Christian, uh, you're deluded. You, you, have to, you have to take on genuinely a, a gentle as a dove, meek, humble as the Savior. But you got to take on a militant view, and you got to realize I'm here for a purpose. And so while I might be uh, enjoying the job or useful or contributing, I'm going to go there with a mindset that, you know, I'm, I'm here to bear witness. So by, again, how do you do it? Well, I lived in an environment where guys would literally tell me to my face, you're ridiculous, or you're, you know, you're antiquated or I had one guy sitting in the car after lunch one time and he just laughed at me. So, I mean, ridicule, it's got to roll off of you like a duck, you know, water on a duck. You just, you got to realize you bear witness in the choices you make, the things you say, your work ethic. The thing that got me was most guys would listen to me because they saw my character. They saw that I was honest, that I loved my wife that I didn't, I didn't indulge in the things that were clearly sinful. They even knew their conscience bore witness and that I was trustworthy and that I worked hard. They saw me rise to leadership and take the lead and was able to carry the baton and lead the team. And so they began to listen. One, of the, one guy was a, a, an avid atheist, right? And uh, he, he would debate me. So we would go to lunch, we'd go to the golf. I never golf, but they'd take me to the golf course, right? And so that's where we stand and talk. And crazy three-hour lunches, you know, in the Silicon Valley, just nuts. But here, here I am there on this golf course. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but, but this atheist is just debating me the whole time. And so in, on the course, in the car, and back into the lab. And now we're standing in the lab in the main corridor, and, you know, white coats are walking everywhere. And here we are debating, debating God. 
And 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 I got the the thing I want to bring you to on this part of the story is that he, he I was so blessed because he came to the point I never thought I would ever see it. He came to the point where he 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 hung his head. He looked down on that beautiful tile on that floor, and he just shook it and he says, "You know what? You're right." He says, "You're right. I have nothing to stand on." That's that's the first task mm-hmm. of the Christian is to re, is is not not to. It's simply to, to pull the carpet from under them because they stand upon a false assumption that they think that their worldview is, is sustainable, and it's not. And so when he saw that, he just said, you know what? I can." Now, he wasn't accepting Christ by any stretch, but what he was doing was intellectually coming to a place of checkmate and acknowledging intellectually, I can't, I can't use this as an excuse anymore. I, I don't have anything to stand on. So how can I answer the most fundamental and essential questions of existence, meaning, purpose, life, love, logic? How can I do my job with any sense of real purpose? <laughs> what am I here for? <laughs> so it was wonderful. By the, by the way, that, that happened, again, another providence, just months before he was changed to, a, to one of our other labs in, in, uh, in Europe, in Germany, and when he, right before he left, though, I, after that whole concession, I came to him, I had a stack of books I bought for him, and I gave him, I gave him a MacArthur study Bible, and I said, this is yours on one condition. You got to read it. You got to read it cover to cover. If you have any questions, let me know. I'd love to, I'd love to be there alongside you as you go through this. And then I gave him a few other books on science and faith, and um, he agreed. A, a man that I never thought I would see ever, ever even even blink at the thought he's here now with these with the holy scripture in his hand and he's nodding his head yeah i'll read it and then that was i maybe saw him two more times and he was gone mm. that's, that's a, how that's how you do it those right. are great stories <laughs> right you, know, you talked about first dismantling his view but you started the, the most important thing is that the neutrality is a myth yes so, you know that's that's where it started manny with your discussion and understanding that everything we do in our job outside of her job, even them looking at us, everything is not neutral. So that's everything right. needs to be under the Lordship. Amen. So well, That's good. Well, I, I want to transition in a minute, but before we get to the uh, a transition spot, one of the things that is in the news today <clears throat> quite a bit, and uh, and I think you had some hand in, in some of these things, and that's the uh, AI, right? Artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's in the news quite a bit today. Uh, I wanted to see a, a little bit of your understanding of that. Your maybe a, first your background in that. Did you what did you have in, involved in that in your in your line of work? And, and then um, maybe just talk to us a little bit about your view of AI mm-hmm. and the things that we are potentially facing. And things that are in conversation today, right? Things that are in the news talking about AI with personality and the ability for a computer to learn um, these types of of anthropomorphic ideas given to a machine and, and, and so forth. Um, and any other elements of bias and the potential for, uh, you and I spoke about this before, of weaponizing mm-hmm. things like this and the uh, potential for deception. But yet, as there are also good things that can come from it. And are there things that are useful for Christians? How should we think about AI? That might be a little bit of a long question, but uh, maybe start again with uh, your background in that. That's great. Uh, yeah, so I definitely dealt with AI in, in the laboratory. Again, we dealt with optics, magnetism, and a sor- all sorts of things. And one of the things I was a chairman and co-chair of, uh, of Grid Computing, GG, GGF, uh, the Global Grid Forum. 
AI was one of the one actually of the working groups in Global Grid Forum. And this was again back starting as far back as the 90s. Uh, so I was involved. I, I did certain review of peer review material. Um, one of the projects they had me working on in Extreme Blue dealt with AI. Um, and so with AI, in some of the experience I had, I had a fairly low level uh, exposure to what actually happens. So you hear of like ChatGPT today, and that's built on open AI. Open AI is an open source level of uh, artificial intelligence is what we're talking about. And the idea is it's a software based, right? Leveraging computational power. It's software based algorithms. Um, so it's logic, human logic running on data. That's all it is. And, and so uh, I was at the low level of understanding the, the architecture of the software. So again, for the purpose that we were being tasked, again, we had a variety, wide variety of different projects, but the types of tasks they would put me on is to lead students. So I was leading PhD interns from various places, Berkeley, MIT, and so forth. They would send them to these laboratories and they would put guys on to lead them. So I was leading one of these Extreme Blue projects that dealt with AI. Um, so it wasn't a product we sold. It wasn't something that was my primary forte, but it was something I had... I had to be involved in and understand. All that to say, uh, you know, understanding AI is a very important thing to help uh, mitigate against fear. Often, you know, when we don't understand something, we are vulnerable to being misled and to misunderstanding will inevitably lead to some level of fear. That's why we get misled is because we don't understand and we place trust in those who we think do. And, uh, and, and we really have no means to, to rebut, to correct. So I would just caution the first thing to understand is, is don't be intimidated. Um, I know it is intimidating. There are, the technologies are layered. Uh, this did not happen overnight. Uh, it's step-by-step -step increments. Um, the idea of all technology is now very intimidating because it has decades and decades and decades of layering. As Isaac Newton said back in the 1660s, that I stand on the shoulders of giants, and that is still the case. And and the giant, you know, those it, we're standing on his shoulders, and so and he was quite a giant himself. And and the idea is now we are so far up in terms of the the complexity that it's very overwhelming to the average, even above average person. Um, so I guess what I would just say is being as one behind the curtain at Oz, right? I, I've seen, I've seen the smoke and mirrors. I know what's happening and I'm not intimidated. And I just want to encourage, especially my brethren in Christ, brothers and sisters, don't be intimidated by the things of this world. The, the reality is technology is not alive. I would say this, I would, can I move into now explaining some yeah, comments please. on AI? I would say one of the, the several things get to me on this chat GPT. This grew up in my backyard in, in right Silicon Valley. This is something that is is quite prevalent there. Um, we have the Google headquarters is right down the road from us, right? And and I remember years ago, back in the early two thousands, Google was doing already had the Google car going through our neighborhoods. Oh yeah, I remember that. So most people you know didn't experience that, but we did. We we I saw the very first set of vehicles sent out for the Google Maps project where they would collect street views, right? And so I know being there, I've seen a lot of this artificial and that's 
not necessarily AI itself, but some of it is, some of the AI uh, technologies put into the vehicles for driving. Now, all that to say, um, being there, seeing that there are a number of cautions, and I would just encourage, step back a little bit. When you look at AI as a whole, as what it does, if you go into chat G GPT and you, and you type something in and you see how it can produce an essay, it, it can stun you. It can make you feel like, wow, and it can, it can feel threatening. Oh, you know, and here's the key. It's artificial. Amen. It's artificial. Amen. It's not true. At least, so, at least right now, they still are admitting that it's artificial. Part of my caution and part of really the burden I would have in terms of just a, our Christian worldview is that we need to realize that, that technology like this that becomes so complex and layered that can intimidate people, that demands trust because you don't know what it's doing, you don't know how it works, so you gotta trust someone who says they do, that, that it can be very easily become weaponized. And here's the deal, that weaponization, I believe, will be in the form of moving from the label artificial to a label that's not artificial. Mm. And, and that's where, I, I, here's the great danger. If we want to get to sort of a philosophical or just a biblical theological worldview analysis, I would say this. I think the greatest danger of AI in terms of a danger is confusion among Christians as to what the image of God is. What we need to understand is the Imagio Dei, that the image of God is unique among all creation, all creation. But in our day, it is very, very common to confuse the difference between a human being or a human baby and an animal. Hmm. And that difference is a tragedy. That, that is the confusion of that difference is a tragedy. And my point is, but it, it lends itself to then confuse the difference between the human reasoning capacities, the, human, the nature of human reasoning, and artificial intelligence in a computer. And that the fundamental danger is that we, we can, in our minds, simply confuse that distinction. What is the image of God? And when you start to talk about artificial intelligence, we are robbing a central distinction of the image of God in creation, robbing that and saying we can actually do it ourselves. We can create this. We can create our most prized faculty. And that's the reality as AI. There's no new creation. That's right. It's, it's knowledge that already exists. It's just tying it together for you. And so that that's the key, Manny. I totally yeah. agree with you. It's yeah. artificial, first off. Amen. And it's really not intelligent. It's just piecing together what's already available. So Absolutely. this is so critical. So critical. Absolutely. And, and Danny, we were, we were current events. We were talking about the chosen. Like even this idea of thinking about images in a different way versus the Bible, right? Yeah. I mean, and so keeping that high view of the Bible and going to the Bible and God for your view, Amen. not to a chat GPT engine. Amen. So. Amen to that. Huge. I, I totally agree. I would just echo, you know, if it weren't for, I, I talked about layers. If it weren't for massive amounts of data, you couldn't have artificial. Right. If, it, if it were not for access to data, which by the way, begins to encroach upon very serious privacy concerns. But if you didn't have the networking capacity, you couldn't have AI. If you didn't have, therefore, the internet, which is largely this data and access to that data uh, in a distributed grid-like form, if you couldn't have this kind of AI. And I'll tell you a neat story. So you talked about the Google autonomous driving car. I, was, I knew the director really well. So 
when they were getting ready to do that experiment, when they were getting ready to start building these cars, they bought, I think, 20 or 30 Teslas with the assisted driving, and they put cameras and drivers in it, and they were just observing what was happening in the car. The biggest defect in the car is the driver. <laughs> it's the human. No, they, they had pictures of these guys going into the back seat to get their, you know, phone charger, and the car's driving, right? And we've seen this, you know, where people are driving yeah. asleep, and so... I would caution you that that AI engine is defective because it's built with all of the defects of man in it, right? That's right. So, Amen to that. Yeah. That's so important. It, it, you know, not only the data, but the logic. Right. There is, you mentioned both of those. It's artificial and it's not intelligent. Right. And, and, and that's, I just stress that. Just need to stress that. And we talk about it. It has a worldview. It, it, Chat, it, Chat GPT has a worldview and that worldview we can actually identify it. We can ask it right. questions in a way that we see that it is not designed for God. Exactly. So. Amen. We're so going to geek out here, Danny. I apologize. No, that's good. No, I, I wanted that. I wanted <laughs> so it's funny because I was, he, as he was talking about the chess machine, it's IBM, it's deep blue. Yeah. So, and I was on the other side of that developing super high-end ASICs, custom semiconductors yeah. for these guys. And we watched, we were, we were participating as it beat Kasparov. So we wow. were, we were invited in the room in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yes. So yeah, we've got a lot of background we can talk about that's offline. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I think uh, that the key element for um, that you brought up there too is just the, the potentiality for um, deception, mm-hmm. for, for for it to be used to fool people into yeah uh, minimizing their view of God and expanding their view of technology in, in a way that uh, that leads them away from an understanding of the image of God. You, you mentioned just even in our day the inability for people to. Uh, give a sufficient distinction between an animal and a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. the, you know, the, the, I hate the phrase fur babies, right? It, because it's a, it's a denigration of actual babies <laughs> and, and, and their participation in our families and the, and the dignity that a baby has as a, that's very different from a, a pet or an animal. And so even in our justice system, we've got problems and in, inequities in there um, viewing, you can kill a baby, but if you uh, were to, kill a dog or you know, be involved in dog fighting, it's throw them away, right. lock, uh, th- uh, lock them away and throw away the key type of uh, attitude among people. And so when you bring that and you flip that into the technology area it, with man with an insufficient and even wicked worldview, um, the, the potential for deception and then moving in, in those types of directions um, away from a, a biblical understanding exactly. and a dehumanizing of people and a humanizing of machine is a, is a concern, right? Absolutely. Well, good. Uh, Thank you for that part. You know, I wanted to, you know, one of the things you sort of left out, you said you didn't, um, you couldn't see in a million years that you would have been a pastor, (laughs) except there, I I do, because we do know each other a little bit. You were actually, though, on the fast track in some regard to the priesthood. Yes. In in the Catholic Church. So you did have some measure of a, of of a sense of leading uh, in, in religious capacity. Um, but yeah, you were maybe just step back for just a quick second. I'd like to maybe tell a little bit of that story of how you were on the road to celibacy. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I, I actually was, you're right. There, there was a before that was before conversion. Right. And so at that time had a fear of God and, uh, wanted to go into the priesthood. So I actually toured the dorms at the monastery, talked to the bishop, I was very serious. That was 17 years old. That was just months before mm. my conversion. 
So the Lord saved you in a couple of ways, didn't yeah, he? In many ways, many, <laughs> many ways. Well, that's great. Um, well, let's change gears uh, here a little bit, and let's talk about um, the reality that you are no longer in the laboratory. Uh, you right. talked about uh, having left that. Um, you uh, sensed a call to the ministry, and uh, and maybe just talk a little bit about that. But as a preacher of the gospel and, and a shepherd of, of God's flock, your, uh, your ministry as a pastor has given you also a passion for the Protestant Reformation. Um, that's a huge part of, of your worldview and uh, your, your love for bringing the truth to God's people. Mm-hmm. Would you uh, talk a little bit about your um, move to, towards ministry away from the sciences in that regard, and then um, you know, where that led you to the Reformation? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I think, you know, without getting into all the detail, it was because I had come to Christ and did not, was not surrounded by the church. And I would say that, you know, that's what our Lord calls us to do is to the church to be faithful, the church to proclaim the gospel, the church then to make disciples. And uh, so I, in my experience, I didn't have the church. And, and that's something that I'm, I'm not, I, I, it grieves me, right? And the Lord sovereignly overcame that deficiency. But my point is, so I came to Christ in that three-month window, and then what happened? I didn't go to a Protestant church after that. Hmm. Went back to the Catholic church. Oh, did you? So I had now, I'm reading the Bible, but I'm going to a Catholic church. And I did that for years. Um, and the, the problem was, you know, with such a deep-rooted heritage and reading the scriptures, I just, I was coming to new understanding of the truth and I could reconcile in my own naive and limited understanding of Roman Catholicism, I could reconcile the symbols now. And I could be a worshiper of the one true God within their system, not because of their system, despite it. And seeing their falsehood as well. And seeing their falsehood. I saw things that I, I recognized even at a young, immature level, I could recognize, no, that's, that's not, we're not going to do that. You know, that's not something that I see in scripture. But again, I wasn't discipled. So this is a path I did not recommend ever, right? This is, we are to be discipled. So now I'm passionate about discipleship. But here's, here's how that connects then, is um, over time, I stayed there, but I, I was increasingly passionate for Christ. So I asked the priest if I could lead a men's group. And it was a retreat. So we took 42 guys and we went out to a retreat center, stayed the weekend. And I had this planned out with uh, activities, and and then I actually taught. So. And how old are you? <laughs> uh, I I guess I was in my twenties. Yeah. Okay. It was in my twenties. It's before seminary. So right? it, it had been a while then. It's it's been a while. So yeah, in my mid twenties probably. And, uh, but you know, I was doing all kinds of other things in science at the time. But here I am at this at this play the retreat retreat center, and um, I'm literally just teaching John fourteen six. I put it up on a on a whiteboard and 42 guys in the room and the priest is in the back. Oh boy. And as I'm teaching John 14, six, now you remember what that is. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me. When I, when I'm teaching this, the priest stands up from the back of the room, comes to the front of the room, raises his hand and looks to the, all the men there and says, there is an exception to this. Mm. And my heart literally just, just completely broke. And I just, I remember feeling pale and I just moved to the side and he proceeded to say, if you, if you, if you did not have a good father and your, your father figure, you can't relate to God as a father. 
then God has given you another way. He's provided Mary so you can relate to God through a mother. So there's another way to God. You can actually come to God through Mary. So the problem he had was no one comes to the Father but through me. And uh, that was that collision was just, in my mind, astronomical. We went outside afterwards and talked, and he rebuked me for quoting too much of the Bible and not enough of the Vatican documents. And at that point, he told me, I cannot understand, nor will I ever be able to interpret the scriptures rightly, that I need the magisterium. Mm -hmm. And if I was serious about it, then I should consider going to Rome. Yeah. And at, at that, that, was, that was the fork in the road. Uh, I didn't darken the Roman Catholic Church again. But here's, here's, the, here's the point that you asked. I appreciate the question. That catapulted me. That experience was something I did not anticipate. Naively, I assumed that you know, we were all Christian if we're claiming Christ. That, that set me on a trajectory to, to do some research on history. And I'm used to research by this time, right? God has wired me for that. So I, I never really liked reading that much uh, history. I didn't really care about literature. I was a math guy. So my, I operated in the other realm of the brain largely. So that was really the first time that it forced me to say, you know, you need to take some of this and you need to go over here and read. You need to understand history. So I did. I came and encountered a little event <laughs> that happened. A little event. A little event. Yeah. No, I, I want to spend like three hours telling you about the Reformation. Mm. The Reform I, came, I came across the Reformation and my life just changed. Uh, my my precious bride was right alongside me and, and she was supportive. I began, she bought me as a gift just weeks later, the full commentary set from John Calvin. And I just started eating everything up I could read on the history and the, and the discussions and the issues at stake. So that led from one thing to the next. And to, to touch on ministry, you wanted me to go there? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so what happened there was um, from that, I began to see the preeminent value of rightly dividing the word of the word of truth the word of god um, i i had a an entirely new sort of renovated revolutionary view and value and appreciation and dependence upon sacred scripture and so i i in the laboratory i'm still working in the lab i began to study greek and so i taught myself greek um, and from that, I began to say, okay, I need more. <laughs> so I, it was a several year endeavor for over two years. I was asking pastors and I was asking uh, professors about ministry, you know, if I should go. And, um, and, and my main reason was because I had a burden to help others see what God was showing me from the scriptures. And that was really it. There was also this increasing love for the church because now after that whole encounter and after coming to the doctrines of grace through the Reformation, I began, to, I began to look for churches. I began to listen on the radio for good Bible teaching. That's where I found John MacArthur and that's where I found our local church and went on from there. I surveyed churches for months in the whole area of the Silicon Valley where we were. And I, 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 I could not believe what I saw, what I experienced, what I heard. So... I find this great church and um, I take my family there and we, we've been there ever since. I started, I was there for years just learning and then got involved in leadership and 
And eventually, well, now back to my point of wrestling, learning Greek, asking profs, asking my pastor, asking uh, other pastors, and and uh, how what that ended up, what the Lord did through that was really took away my love and the competitive edge for my my field of you know in science. And if you don't have a competitive edge where I was, you don't survive. Mm-hmm. And I saw that. I saw that in in a way where I realized. I need to be all in or not. I can't. I can't straddle this. If if I'm going to be, if I'm going to continue this career, I've got to be completely devoted. And as a matter of ethic, again, I would just encourage all men out there. Our witness, our Christian witness, is in the workplace. Even without our words, we tacitly communicate our values by our ethic. And that's not only integrity and honesty, but it's also hard work. And not cheating, not rounding certain corners, not not you know, it's it working to the full, and and being reliable and dependable, and so I I saw that you know that was at at risk at this point. So um, it's hard to uh, divide all that research and information that you've got to take in and work through for your job. And you're working with Greek and reading all this other stuff on the side, right? You were, yeah. you were like, I, I, I'm, I'm one person. Exactly. <laughs> and with a, now a growing family. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So grace of God, I ended up leaving. Now here's the last little bit of the story. I decided I would step out. That, that was a three month deal in research. You don't just step out because I'm in the middle of a, 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 by the time, by the way, there was, I was in the, I was the lead author of an international standard, which is now published. And under IEEE, if you know IEEE, <laughs> um, so uh, there's a standard out there that has Pastor Manny per- as the as the primary author of an international IEEE standard. Ah. I'm, I think it's the only one that has Pastor by the name. I don't know, <laughs> but it's pretty phenomenal. And the reason why is because it took a year and a half for peer review to publish. Yeah. To publish, and when they published it, they sent me this huge packet, and I had to sign everything. And they needed the current title of my <laughs> occupation. <laughs> Sorry. So that was fascinating. Anyway, um, so it was a three-month endeavor to leave the laboratory. And when I left, I told you, since I told you about Shui Lin, his whole, um, that encounter we had, right, of his being a Buddhist and then coming to Christ. Well, he he wept when I first told him, oh, I, bet. I need to leave. He wept. He stood up and he came. He was not an affectionate guy. <laughs> he came over and he hugged me with tears and he said, and this is phenomenal. You've got to catch this. He said, I know your boss. And he's bigger than me. Wow. Because he was my boss, right? So he's like, no, I know your boss. He's bigger than me. And he wept. And he said, no, go. You have to go. You have to go. So he saw. Right. And uh, yeah, so that, the point is, after that three months, uh, I decided to sell everything. We had a nice, you know, we had a handsome income, lots of security, beautiful home. Everything was going for sale. I sold my fancy sports car and all of that. And I was heading down to L.A. We were liquidating everything. And I was going to be a missionary. I just thought, you know what, just Lord, here I am, send me wherever you will. And I just wanted to go to master's because uh, in my experience of surveying seminaries at the time, uh, they had the highest view of scripture that I could find. And that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to go where the scriptures would be held in the highest esteem. And so we were planning to do that. While I was in process, I was actually doing a creation conference, believe it or not, (laughs) here I am doing a creation conference in Michigan because I did these in different places all over. And... uh, as I'm doing that, I get a phone call one of the evenings after the session, and it was the church saying, you know what, we don't want you to leave. Why don't you, why don't you stay and we'll fund you to go to seminary 
and you know we'll we'll just trust the Lord with this. So that's how that's how I entered ministry. So you stayed in that area then, and um, and and then you went to seminary, and then what was the process of you becoming the pastor? You became the pastor of the church that was sending you. Is that correct? That's correct. We were in a situation, and all of this is providence, right? So I, the Lord used these things to enlarge my impoverished view of providence. And I've come to appreciate a very deep sense of a constant acknowledgement and a mindfulness that God is at work when you least expect it. There are things that are happening and nothing is by chance. And um, providence Clearly, we were nine months without a pastor. I was serving at the time as an elder, and um, they knew my heart and passion, and they knew I was moving. I was going to go into missions, but they, they, they reasoned, they wrestled, they prayed, and they gathered the congregation when I was away doing this conference. And we're talking a Coldwell box, lockbox was on our door. In our home and its pictures were in a catalog. This thing was going to be sold. I was looking at a time window of less than a month and I would be in another place. So they called at, at the opportune time to intercept that. And uh, so the, the, the short of it is uh, we were without a pastor at the church. I was serving as an elder and they just said, why don't we, why don't we install you as the pastor without a Bible education, without seminary training? And it was entirely based upon character. And if I might just throw out there an important thing, you know, for all churches and for all of us to understand the importance of the pastorate, the importance of shepherds, it begins in their character, right? And I think a healthy church will recognize that. So it's not about, we live in such a, a consumer model mentality today where we go to the church that we get the most out of it or something. And, and that most out of it has nothing to do with the character of the people. So it's not in the bylaws? <laughs> I, I'm the saying out of no, <laughs> but but right. I mean, you know, it's not about it's yeah, exactly. It's not it's not about what's on paper. It's not about what's it's not about statements of faith. It's right. it's, it's not about sermons. It's not about your programs. It's not about your children's ministry. It's it's not about those things. It's about it's about the living Christ in the hearts of the people and and the character of your leadership is of supreme importance, right? And, and that's where I think I came to realize at that time, this church acknowledged that the, they valued the character over the academics and the all the external qualifications in terms of uh, degrees and education. They simply looked at the scripture and saw that, you know, 1 Timothy 3 actually didn't talk about a seminary degree. It didn't talk about even the level of knowledge the man had to have. He had to aspire to teach. Well, he had to aspire to be an elder. He had to he had to have an aptitude to teach, but but they didn't say anything. Scripture doesn't say anything about those particular qualifications. Its entire emphasis is on the character of the man. So I, I just wanted to in, encourage us all to remember. Let's go back to that. We've professionalized so much of the church, and we've we've artificially added these layers, and we've we've made it something that you know it it, it drifts from the heart of it all. So they installed me as a pastor before any formal education. And then the church lovingly, graciously uh, supported financially my flights to fly down every week and fly back every week uh, for a period of three years. And um, so they, they, they lived through that challenge by the grace of God. Well, and that's 
that brought us together, right? That so sure did. That's uh, where we met, was at seminary, and uh, you were quite the focused guy, but yet we were uh, privileged to be able to share some, I think, some meals together and, and some times in class together. And, uh, you know, we could never really be that close in seminary because right. you were on a mission, right? You were preaching each week, Every week. while in seminary. Uh, we, we were preparing your messages, I think, on the planes to and from mm-hmm. a lot of that anyway. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, doing all of your coursework in, in that time. Uh, you got to take a little bit of a break mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, Providence uh, was to have it that uh, your wife had twins while you were in seminary. Yes. Um, and now our uh, your twins and my kids and uh, your other kids are, <laughs> are becoming fast friends with one another. They're now pen pals. Uh, they've been writing each other uh, over the last year or so. And, um, but just, this has been a, a truly a, literally it's a dream come true to Mm -hmm. be able to have you here and, and you, you keep referencing Providence and, uh, and as you, as you become more aware of the understanding of that biblical idea and the recognition that God is not distant from his creation, but he is intimately involved in all the details that even when you don't see or, or recognize in the moment, um, what is happening that God has a purpose for everything and is moving his pieces around and, and, and sovereignly working through, uh, individual. This is what it gives you an awe of God and his, I mean, AI is nothing compared <laughs> to the mind of God and his, and his will and his person to be able to move throughout creation and in so many individuals and people, um, that in his providence, uh, we were reunited after basically more than 10 years of being separated from seminary and, uh, and to actually build the friendship that we would have liked to have while we were in seminary. And that, you know, I said back in the day in seminary, I said, you know, if, if I ever have a creation conference, which I would love to do, cause I'm a six day creation person, et cetera, that, uh, man, I'd love to call Manny sometime and have him uh, come and do a, a conference and then uh, well, a year and a half, whatever it was ago, your, your daughter walks into our church <laughs> as having moved to the area. I mean, talk about Providence, mm-hmm. moves to the area. I find out who her dad is and I'm like, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, and of course, grandpa needs to get a grandpa fix and yes. come and see his grandbaby and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then whoever else is here too. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and then we have the ability then to have you come and visit and to, um, bless us with the teaching and the ability to get to know you better and to have this conference um, for our church. And and it's just been such a privilege and a joy to have you. And then of course, I mean, if you're going to be here, we're going to get you on the podcast. And, and I'm just grateful that you've given us this time and for the ability for all of our people to be able to get to know you, to appreciate the, um, the way that the Lord has worked in your life and how differently he works in all of our lives, right? And not everybody, is, this isn't a, a go and be like Manny uh, entirely in this particular way in terms of your career and those types of things, but it's the recognizing that God um, uh, graciously gives us people with various gifting and various interests and talents, um, but he's given us the same Lord and he's given us the same word, and we have the ability then to uh, dedicate ourselves to uh, to understanding him, to uh, worshiping him, to being involved in the, to being obedient to him and being involved in the things that he's called us to, uh, regardless of where our station in life is or our vocation or our interests, we are to be, um, in our differences, we're to join together in one body and to be united together in, with the same mind and the same purpose and the same hope and all these things. Uh, we come together and we, we bring these different elements and we then serve one another, love one another, disciple one another, all those types of things. And so we, we're just privileged to be 
uh, family with mm. you and family with um, with many people um, who the Lord is bringing to Himself. And so we're we're just really grateful for this time. Um, I think that's the the main element of what we want to talk about today, Jim. I just want to give you a kind of a, maybe a final word on that before we close out the podcast today. Um, of course, you guys have had some similar backgrounds. Anything you want to add, or any other questions that you want to bring? Oh, up? I want to keep them for another hour. So I know, right? I came out of Catholicism. I went into technology because I was good at math, and we have paralleled each other. It's 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 kind of scary. And then I left high tech because it is a commitment, yeah. and I felt called to go and disciple men. You know that, Danny, and so. There's no halfway in technology. There's no halfway in science. You're you're all in. It's long hours. It's dedication, and it's hard on your family. It's hard on you, but but there is a joy to it. Um, the way that God's designed us, mm-hmm. and you know, you talked about it. God is the God of diversity, and I mean true diversity, not yeah. the diversity that the world is seeking. And it's just a beautiful picture when we all see the gifts that He's given each of us and designed us specifically for tasks in time. That's right. There's different time periods, so. Yeah. Really joyful. Glad you're here. Uh, I want to get you offline and talk more. That'd be great. Well, it has been a joy, again, to have uh, you with us today at this conference and with our our church, and we appreciate, again, your ministry to us. And so we look forward to having you back uh, with us again very soon. Well, that's all the time we have for Truth today. We want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and His church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's Word is truth.